this episode of The Interface, I speak with Roxanne DeBatey, Business Development Manager for the Amphenol Corporation. Roxanne has been with Amphenol for a little over a year now. We talk about her business development role and her year-long crash course learning about a wide variety of Amphenol businesses. We talk about growing up in both South Carolina and France, the differences, the similarities, and what she's taken from those experiences. We talk about graduating high school at 16 and finishing college, and her first job after college in direct sales, where she learned as much about compassion for others as she did about her job. We talk about why volunteering is so important to her, and we discuss her Desert Island album, book, and movie. This is The Interface. Roxanne, you know there's a there's an old hip-hop song from like the early 80s called Roxanne. Did you ever hear that song? So I've heard the old hip-hop song from like two years ago, and then obviously the police song, but yeah. I did not an old hip-hop song. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Roxanne, maybe by Houdini, maybe. I'll have to look it up, but I, every so when I hear your name, I think of that. And the Steve Martin movie. You know the Steve Martin movie? Did you ever see that, Roxanne? No. It's, no. Like, a, it's like a twist on Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know Cyrano de Bergerac very well, but I did not know there was a Steve Martin movie. Yeah. See, we're, uh, Martin, we're, we're getting to Desert Island albums, books, and movies way too early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we'll come back to that. We'll come back to all this later. But Roxanne, no thank problem. you very much for doing this today. I appreciate you coming on and uh, spending time with us as a new, fairly new employee to Amphenol, Amphenol Corporation. So if you could, we'll start out with you just telling everybody what your role is right now. Well, um, I'm the business development manager for EV, so electric vehicles. And basically, I kind of look at the market in general and try to ascertain where we aren't yet, what's exciting, what's new, which right now is everything with EV. So it's that's what I do. How does that then translate? So you collect, you gather a bunch of information, right? And then how do you figure out what to disseminate out to the various groups and business units and then how to do that and work with them? So a little bit about that role. How do you do that? So it's funny because I'm learning kind of the spider web of Amphenol groups oh, yeah. and entrepreneurs. And it's taken me, so I've been here about a year, and it's probably taken me the better part of a year to figure out where all the little experts are in the different divisions. So my role is to both look at kind of where the investments are going. So if we think about right now in EV, it's battery and battery supply chain. Then I have to go understand, okay, where has Amphenol played up until now? You know, who do we already talk to? And then I make a list of targets that might be interesting to look at. I try to marry that up with what Amphenol has done before. And then either we expand the conversation with people we already know, or we perhaps initiate conversations with new people. So that's kind of how I fit. How many different Amphenol business units and groups have you touched just in the last year? Oh, dear. <laughs> so many. Yeah. And actually, what's been really nice is when the interns came in in the summer, it was great because I got to go visit with them a lot of operations. And so just seeing the microcosms uh, at each operation and how each of them have kind of their own personality. And it's been really neat. So quite a few of them. I don't know if I have a number for you. That's actually a great point, though, in that you've seen so many different Amphenol divisions and businesses over the, your first year in this corporation. Mm -hmm. And you've gotten as good a look as maybe anyone who starts out the, their career at Amphenol at just the wildly diverse businesses and wildly diverse product uh, portfolios and ways they go to market and, and all this. 
it must be at times just head spinning for you to to kind of drink all of this in, right? It really is. And I came from the packaging industry, so it's not like I knew how a sensor was built or even where sensors could be used everywhere. And I'm just picking on sensors. Yeah. Um, but so it's been fascinating to watch just how the parts work together and then the the finesse with which we make some of these parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been head spinning is a good word. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And and having the opportunity myself too to visit a number of different Amphenol factories over the years, it is every time I go to a new one, it, it blows my mind how just wildly different, yet how much they are similar from one another too. And just the, the mm-hmm. way that they operate and the way they function, but the technologies involved, you know, just going to the sensor businesses uh, about a month ago, I mean, that is completely foreign to me. You mentioned sensors too, and they're talking about, you know, crystal manufacturing and thermistors and all these sorts of things. And I'm just like, I have no idea. And I don't think you're from a technical background either. So is it intimidating to you or if you learn to kind of control that and go, it's not really about being an expert in all this, it's just being able to help the various businesses connect dots. Yeah. And I think what is important for me to learn when I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to show this to customers or where would this fit is where are the nuances in the process. So, you know, you mentioned crystals, it's, there are different recipes for crystals. So Mm -hmm. then they can have properties. So what I retain is, okay, these sets of properties are achievable and, but at least getting an appreciation for, you know, how many steps where kind of the finesse or the errors might happen in the process. That is important to know. And then I just, I mean, I, I grew up with, parents who worked at Michelin, the tire company. So they talk about rubber all the time. So I actually think it's kind of cool to watch how these things are made, but you're right. That's not, I don't need to become an expert in that to do my job, but it's just interesting. Do you like learning the technical aspects of the different products and technologies? I find it really interesting. I don't know, you know, how good I would be at it, but I find it really interesting. (laughs) After I asked, I don't think, I hope she doesn't say no. (laughs) Yeah. That wouldn't be good. She said, no, I don't like it at all. It's, you know, it's actually kind of boring. You know, I don't really care about all this stuff. Crystals, ugh. You're a service person. Yeah. 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 Have you dealt with a number of customers yet or that hasn't been in your uh, work description so far? So far, I've stayed mostly behind the scenes to try to learn what Amphenol has done in the market so far, but I'm actually moving into that because I've followed a couple of new companies that have come up in the climate change space. So if you think Mm -hmm. energy storage and all that and, um, and starting introductions with them. So that's going to feed me into the customer facing role, which I actually really like because I think the kind of engineer to engineer discussions are really interesting. And without talking to the customer, you just kind of stay as a theoretical person. So I should be doing more of that soon. Right. And that'll color in a lot of what you've done over the last year, for sure. I mean, you've learned a lot about Amphenol. It's been a crash course over the last year. But then to really get with the market and to talk to the customers and talk to the engineers and the program people, that's really going to make you super powerful and even better at dealing with the Amphenol divisions, too. So that's good. Must be looking forward to it. Yeah, I am. And I, I always think the customers are buying what we're selling. So they're going to put priorities on certain aspects. And you don't know that until you ask them. If you just stay kind of on the sell side, you're like, oh, I, I'll make a perfect product or this is everything that's interesting. Let's solve all of the problems. So it kind of puts a priority on what you should focus on. Well, I'm excited for you. That should be good. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so we'll jump backwards now. All right. And we'll go back to Young Roxanne, before the uh, the old 80s hip-hop song, 
All right. Now, young Roxanne, you grew up in South Carolina, right? I sure did. I was born in France and we moved when I was two and a half. So you do not, I told you this before, you do not sound like you're from South Carolina at all. You have a very (laughs) nondescript accent. So uh, describe what it was like growing up in South Carolina for you. You As you said, your parents both worked for Michelin? Yep. I'm a total Michelin baby. I was born where Michelin is headquartered, which is a town called Camelfield There's nothing there except dormant volcanoes and Michelin headquarters. (laughs) Um, Please don't come for me if you're listening to this from Camelfield. And then growing up in South Carolina, we actually were lucky because I have two younger brothers. So when I say we, I mean the three of us. We had a French school. And so we would alternate every year between the American school system and the French school system. And it was even less smooth than it would be today. So I credit that for my ability to kind of pivot on the fly. Yeah. But except for math, absolutely nothing translated. Really? Um, Literally and figuratively. Yeah. I mean, every, obviously, kind of history and geography would focus on different things that came later. But in the beginning years, you know, the way you learn to read and write, to memorize, those are all different between the two systems. So it's very interesting. And I think the French school system moves the whole class together through the grades and at arguably a faster pace, but the American school system breaks out into honors and all of those other levels. And so it's kind of a different pattern. So it was interesting. It's interesting that everything was different, right? Mm -hmm. You'd think even something like, uh, like science would be cultural and linguistically agnostic. And yet you're hinting that it was not. It was not. Yeah. (laughs) And it broke into, um, I want to say it broke into like biology, chemistry, and physics in the American school system more quickly. I may be wrong on that, but there were also nuances there. So it was interesting. (laughs) So you lived for a number of years in France too, right? A few. I lived until I was two and a half, and then we went back in fifth grade. What was that like? I mean, you're two and a half. You really don't remember anything at that age, if at all. I don't really remember anything before I was five. But, (laughs) but, you know, you're growing up in South, for all intents and purposes, you're growing up in South Carolina, and then you go to Mm -hmm. France for a while. How Mm -hmm. was that transition? How quickly did you adapt? How much did you like it? Well, um, those are great questions. What I think saved us a little bit on the fitting in side was that luckily all of my family is still in Europe. And so Mm. every summer my parents would split our summers between swim team and going to Europe to visit my family. So on the culture side, we kept up every summer with kind of the words that were trending or the songs that were trending. And, and, you know, to a kid, that's a big deal. So when we went back to live there in fifth grade, we actually came back earlier than supposed to because we just liked the way South Carolina was raising us and and how kind everyone was down there. Um, But France, I mean, the culture in France, you'll hear a million times is, is really beautiful and and the food's amazing. And so I think it was a really nice interlude to go back and just Mm -hmm. feel what it would be like to live here. But I am, I'm really happy my parents raised us uh, in South Carolina. And I think both of the experiences would have been valuable, but the, the jumping back and forth, I think was really neat. What have you taken from France as you've grown and matured over the years and gone through college and all that? I mean, what about that experience over the years do you think has helped you in, in your school experiences, your work experiences, et cetera, even personal relationships? Yeah, I love that question. I think uh, off the cuff, in France, there's a 
pride in what you do. And there's a pride in doing everything well, even if no one is watching. Mm. Um, and that's something as basic as if you find a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, France, their baguettes are still going to be amazing. Their cheese is going to be perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so there's kind of this idea that just because it is a thing of beauty, do it well. And so I think that can translate into kind of working styles, but then also in treasuring maybe deep relationships and things like that. And I would also say from a work ethic aspect, I think schooling is maybe stressed even more in academics in France. And so I'm also the eldest child by all definitions. So I think <laughs> the, the rigor with which I looked at my studies as yeah. kind of a way to see more opportunities, that probably also came from being raised by, you know, a European family. So I would say those two things. How often do you get to go back? I try to go back every year. So I'm the the one American grandkid who really tries hard to fit it in. I, I think it's so important and, and family is really important stuff. And just out of curiosity, what part of France were you living in? We lived in the middle, so Clermont-Ferrand, where I was born, but my grandparents, my cousins, my mom, they're all from the south of France in Provence. So when we go back every summer, it's to the south of France, which is arguably the most beautiful place. I mean, it yes. looks like it. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It is. I was there once and it was awesome. Yes, yeah, it is awesome. I purposely would take a backpack and disappear for a day or two, just not doing anything, but trying to get by was great. I loved it. Yeah. So it's, it's a great country. So it's, you're really fortunate to have had the chance to do that. It allows you to speak fluently another language. You speak more than just French though, right? If I remember correctly. Well, I was fluent in Spanish when I went, I went to live there for six months yeah. in 2012. And now I try to use it as often as I can, but I would not feel myself fluent, but definitely very comfortable in it. You could survive if we dropped oh, you off. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So boom, <laughs> Roxanne, you're in Spain or you're in Mexico, you know, get by, you'd be fine. Actually, our, our team in Mexico, uh, one of the tours I took, they gave it to me in Spanish. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And no matter how fluent you think you are, when you have to you use the word censor in Spanish, it's, <laughs> it kind of throws you for a loop, you know? What is it? Well, now that I say that, I think it's censor, but I might be wrong. It's best when you're in it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I get it. <laughs> I should look this up and come back to you. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's better this way, right? <laughs> so yeah. you spent time in, in South Carolina and in France growing up, and then... You went to college, I think you went to University of South Carolina, right? The other USC, or maybe for sure. you, it's the USC. The USC. I think yeah. now they're U of SC, but the Gamecocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what did you major in when you were at USC? So I did international business, marketing, and human resources. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, and the, the link is that, so I was 16 when I went to college. I was a little young, and all I knew is that I was really interested in people, and I thought, okay, HR is how to motivate people to come and give their all. And then marketing is how do people represent themselves through their purchases? So mm -hmm. it's kind of two aspects, but still on the backbone of business, which my two parents always told me was the way to make the world go around. So <laughs> there we were. Let me go back to something. You said you started when you were 16. So mm -hmm. you must have really cruised your way through high school pretty well, put in some work, some effort. Honestly, I think someone filled out the paperwork wrong when I went from France to English school. No, I'm just You're <laughs> being modest. You're being modest. <laughs> it was a, I don't know if it was a cruise, but it happened. <laughs> you were driven, right? Yeah. You're driven, you're motivated, you had a plan of what you wanted to do, 
and yes. uh, you didn't let many things distract you and you had bigger goals you wanted to achieve. Is that fair? I think there was more surety if I went through things quickly. Yeah. And there were also two brothers behind me watching me go. And I thought if I go through it as seamlessly as possible, they'll have more room to be creative in their path through it. So it was, I think, both the drive and, and just the want to make it easy for them. It's funny because I'm the oldest as well in my family. And if my brother and sister heard this right now, they'd be like, well, why didn't Chris do that for us? You know? <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> he, he showed us the wrong way of how to do things. <laughs> he showed you. Yeah, I did. I guess in a way, sometimes you learn what not to do just as much as you learn what to do. Anyway, um, then what did you do once you got out of uh, college? So right out of college, I actually worked for a year in a sales organization, in a direct sales organization. And the reason I did that was to kind of understand how marketing pushed through to sales. It was the hardest I have ever worked long hours you're on your feet you hear no a million times a day which any salesperson will tell you um so for a you know 20 21 year old it was forming um yeah which is probably the kind way to say that but then i realized that i really had gone to school to think through the strategy behind sales and so after that is when i went to work for a global packaging company because they needed a global marketing person. So mm -hmm. they needed someone who spoke French and Spanish and who could do marketing for the divisions outside of the U.S., which was perfect for me because I could use my languages, travel a little bit, and then really get into marketing strategy. You mentioned the direct sales job was super difficult. Mm -hmm. Describe for us, if you could, what was difficult about it? Like, what was a typical day like where you're like, oh my goodness, this is, this is killing me? Yeah. So we, at, first of all, just brutally the length of time we, I got to the office at six 30 in the morning and then we would run, I had a team. So mm -hmm. I actually had people reporting to me and we would for an hour and a half run through our pitches. We would talk about what products we were going to be demoing. And so we were literally demoing a portfolio of products within different club stores. So we were doing like live demonstrations mm -hmm. and what was difficult about it is you had to be on very energetic from the moment you stepped into that store, which usually was, let's say 10 AM to 6 PM. Yeah. But then you had to break down the booth, set up the booth, the relationships with humans. It's so funny. I think there's been a focus during COVID on how much our service workers do for us to, to run the machine that is society. Yeah. But the, the way people treat you when you're in a service job is it showed me kind of the worst side of humanity, but then also how hard it is to work some of those jobs. Yeah. So I'm really thankful for it, but that's why it was hard. And it's funny because the exact same person, you know, now sitting in this job, arguably no different, gets treated completely differently. So. Yeah, no, you're right. And I mean, it, it sounds like it built some awareness and, and compassion on your end for sure in that, Hey, look, this is, this is not easy. And people who have to do this uh, deserve our respect and kindness. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, following that through, hopefully, as, as you go on with the various experiences you have. You mentioned then the packaging company. You then did your, you did your MBA, right, at Yale. So talk to us a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, so after four years in marketing strategy, I was also running that company's first uh, volunteering group. And I volunteering's been a thread throughout my life, but I realized that I was actually really interested in kind of the behind the scenes of how we help people who aren't served by the different, you know, ways in which you can succeed today. So mm -hmm. 
to me, that was the nonprofit world. Yeah. And the one thing about Yale is that they are the MBA. They call themselves the number one MBA for nonprofit management. And so I realized there was this whole world beyond just kind of corporations involvement in volunteering. There was nonprofit, there's social enterprise. Now there are, you know, different forms of companies that can be created. There's the triple bottom line and all that. So I went to Yale hoping to learn more about that and then also round out leadership skills, which is what most people go get an MBA yeah, for. Right. So spent two years at Yale and it was the hardest and best two years of my life. And then here we are now. <laughs> One more time, we're going to go back to something. You talked about volunteering a lot. Why did you get into volunteering? What was it about your personality, your makeup that wanted to, because it's not something it's like, ah, I guess I have to volunteer. This has to be something that you want, you desire, that's like in your soul, you want to volunteer. So what was it about volunteering for you that was so attractive? It's funny because most, I would say, American students in high school kind of get volunteering put on them if they want to go right. apply for college. And what it was for me, I mean, that was that gave me the opportunity to check out a bunch of organizations because they all recruit high school students to volunteer for them. But to me, the idea that there are so many people that have stories or that have paths that you don't understand until you ask them and volunteering to me got me to just understand and love people that I never would have come across mm -hmm. otherwise. I also it's as natural as. I don't know, doing laundry to me. If you are a person who operates in society and you are lucky because of the parents you had and the jobs they had, why are you doing nothing to help the person who is just like you, but maybe didn't have that luck? I, it just like, to me was something you just did with mm -hmm. the extra. Dad. And, and not to say that obviously I'm not now working in a nonprofit. So I'm obviously doing other things with my time. But I think there are many ways to make an impact. But to me, making an impact and what impact does my time on this planet have was always kind of a consideration. You know, it's funny because part of me, my default setting is to say how noble of you to do that. And <laughs> my feeling is that you would probably say it's not noble. It's just normal. I'm a normal human yeah. being with, you know, regular emotions. And I, and I notice things out in the world and I just feel like doing it. But mm -hmm. I'm still going to stick to the fact that it can be both. And it is noble. So, you know, I give you a lot of credit for doing that. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> There's sure. so much to do. So I'm <laughs> just trying to help. So that brings us to Amphenol. So how did you find Amphenol? How did they find you? I know they recruit at the Yale School of Management. Um, so is that how you found them? Well, funny enough, they did come to SOM and Klaus gave a presentation on the environmental impact of Amphenol. Yeah. So I went purely for the environment side and I left thinking, well, ugh, not for me. Like I don't have expertise in this stuff. And then I was working in that weird, we graduated in the pandemic in May, 2020. So mm -hmm. we had kind of a weird longer period after graduating. And one of the things I worked on was a project with a professor who I had at Yale um, writing a book and he happens to know Adam through other engagements. And so he said, have you ever considered a company called Amphenol? And I said, Ooh, um, not really. And <laughs> I met Klaus again. We had an hour call that went an hour 45 yeah. as most people will say. Yeah. And then I met Dave and then I met Adam and I thought if there is something I can learn from Adam, I will take the chance to learn it. I mean, that guy is amazing. So that's how I found Amphenol and ended up here. And a year later, here you are. 
Exactly. <laughs> on the podcast. That's great. That's great. So I've made it. it. It sounds like you've learned a lot, but there's still so much more to learn. So, um, oh, yeah. and, and so many more things to do. All right. So when you're not doing your regular job, you're not volunteering, you're not out speaking three languages, what do you <laughs> like to do in your free time? So I'm a big hiker. Um, okay. so I really love the mountains and funny enough, I really love the cold. And I say funny enough because my mom is a beach person. So when we yeah. grew up, we went to hot places, usually Spanish speaking countries and very flat and mm. salty. And when I kind of grew my own independence as an adult, I thought, Ooh, mountains and cold sound really good. So, <laughs> so I love hiking. I love being outside and I really like to cook too and bake. So I love having friends over which has been a little hampered in these last few months. All right. Now, are you ready? I know I talked to you about this in November when uh, I, you and I were together in Wallingford. I put you on a desert island. I know. Let's just pretend it's cold, though, okay? And there's a mountain in the background, but it's still a desert island in the middle of nowhere. You're there by yourself. All right. Now, you said you were preparing for this, so I expect some great things here, right? Could you question? I've never heard this one before. You've never heard just... this one? No. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got me. Okay. So I say, okay, Roxanne, you can bring with you one album, one book, one movie. Let's start with the album. All right. So my album is going to be Phil Collins hits. And the reason I pick Phil Collins, first of all, we grew up on him and my, the way my dad introduced him to us was he's one of the few drummers who can sing. That's right. And so I thought, right. And so I thought, a musician like that, that could kind of bring those two pieces together was fascinating. And uh, we played Another Day in Paradise on every single road trip we went. So I have a memory of my brother and I with our arms out the windows, like jamming out to that whole album, but the Tarzan soundtrack, the hits album. So I would pick that one by far. All right. Phil Collins, it is. Do you, are you going to include his days in Genesis too, or just Phil Collins solo? Yeah. I mean, I got to know him solo, but Genesis, you know, surrounds that solo career. So yeah. you have to. Yeah. All right. Good one. I grew up on Phil Collins, too. Just to let you know. There we go. How about a book? All right. So book was hard because I really like to read. And I'm picking, I think, one that makes sense for a desert island. It's very long. It's called Shantaram. Okay. Probably read it. 10 years ago. But it's quite literally a thousand or so pages. And it's. Auto, sort of autobiographical, which I find so interesting. The author was escaping prison for crimes he committed because he happened to be addicted to drugs. And he went, ran to India. And the book is that same story. And so the guy runs away to Bombay and becomes kind of an, like a doctor in the slums. And so it's this beautiful recap of India. It's super colorful, so like vivid. Um, and I fell in love with the book and the story, and then I actually got to go to India, and it's just as much raw kind of life as that book depicts. So Shantaram. Shantaram? Mm-hmm. Okay. I had not heard of it, but interesting. Um, I'll have yeah. to look this up. And finally, movie. Movie, I would pick Dead Poets Society. Okay. And I know I'm all over the map, but I'm actually pretty young in my movie knowledge because we didn't watch too many growing up, but yeah. I love Williams and I love writing and words. Yeah. And so Ben's whole speech about the word very being lazy 
just has always stuck with me. Yeah. And I think it would be a little bit of a sad movie to bring on this island, but Shandram will maybe be the happier side of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dead Poet Society is a fantastic movie. Young Ethan Hawke, of course, yeah. um, mm-hmm. who gives that great uh, description when he put, brings him up there on the spot and improvs that whole poem, which is unbelievable. Of course, if you're a Walt right. Whitman fan, you'll like that movie. Yeah, Robin Williams is unbelievable in that. But yeah, a yeah. little bit of a bummer movie. <laughs> but, but it's beautiful. And it is. It is. It is. I, I'm not going to dispute you on that. It absolutely is a, is a wonderful movie. So, well, listen, Roxanne, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I've been looking forward to this uh, after you and I talked a couple months ago. So, so thank you very much. This has been great. I wish you the best of luck here in the coming year. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.